Let's all pray as we enter into God's word. Lord Jesus, we ask you to be present in your unique way this morning. We ask you to fill this place as you already have uh, with your spirit, but even more so as your word is spoken. I pray that you would interpret your word to go to our hearts, that we might be transformed through it. Lord, I, I thank you for what you're doing in the midst of this place. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. We've been working through the Gospel of Luke, and we will continue that pattern this morning. If you want to turn, turn to chapter 2, verses 36 through 38. It says there, There also was a prophet named Anna, the daughter of Phanelio, of the tribe of Asher. She was very old. She had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage and then had been a widow for 84 years. This puts her somewhere in her upper 90s at least. She's a very old lady. Um, she never left the temple but worshipped day and night, night and day, fasting and praying, coming up to them, as she's coming up to Mary and Joseph at this point. At that very moment, she gave thanks to God and spoke about the child, Jesus, to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. In this setting, uh, Jesus is a baby. Mary and Joseph are in the temple in Jerusalem. Anna is a lady who is a devout woman who has prayed for a long time for the redemption of Jerusalem. And there are other people around there who have been seeking the same thing with her. And she sees Jesus and prophetically says, This is the one who will bring the redemption of Jerusalem. What exactly is she talking about? The redemption of Jerusalem. See, at that time, as you may have picked up a little over the last few weeks, as Greg has been sharing with us, Jerusalem and Israel was under the power and authority of an enemy called the Roman government. And the people of Jerusalem were waiting for the deliverance by God, the salvific act of God. And they expected there to come a Messiah who would be a king, who would drive out their enemies. He wouldn't just come and be a nice guy. He would come out and drive out the Roman Empire and restore the presence of God to the temple. See, it wasn't just about authority, or it wasn't just about driving out the Romans. It was also about restoring the presence of God to the temple. Now, this temple that was in Jerusalem was called Herod's Temple. It wasn't the temple built by Solomon, which was glorious and was full of the presence of God. It was torn down by uh, the enemies of Babylon, and they destroyed that temple. But Herod came back and built a second temple that was not as good. It was not nearly as uh, uh, powerful, uh, not as, nearly as beautiful, or, nor did it have the presence of God in it. It meant to have the presence of God in it, but it not, did not yet ha have the glory of God in the midst of the temple. You know, it's easy to have a, go to a place of worship, and it's different to have a place where the presence of God is. We can all go to church and do our church thing, but it's very different to do the church thing with God present. I read a survey a few years ago where they had surveyed all of the, most, a lot of church goers, and these were Christians in America, that consistently went to church. And from this survey, 
they realized that two out of three people who consistently go to church in America have never experienced the presence of God. They say in their own words, 66% of our, our, our Christians who regularly go to church in America say in their own words, I have never experienced the presence of God. And the people of Jerusalem during this day were saying the same thing. There's a, there's a temple down the way that the presence of God is supposed to be there, but I've never experienced it. And we're waiting for that. And that's what Anna is saying is the redemption of Jerusalem. The redemption of the, uh, by God is coming and to restore the presence of God into this place. Well, those are nice words. Those are good Sunday words, good Christian words that we come and experience on Sunday or for those who were here last night on Saturday night. But then there are those everyday realities that we face. We wake up tomorrow morning and have to go to work. And some of you enjoy it and some of you don't. Some of you roll over, will roll over in bed tomorrow morning and go, my marriage is on the rocks. Some of you will go into your children's rooms and say, we've got problems here. Some of you will think about relating to family members or in-laws or sick parents or something, and you say, well, those were nice Sunday words, but I have everyday realities. Where is the presence of God then when I leave the church? Because see, what Anna was longing for wasn't just a presence of God that was in the temple. It was a presence of God that filled the place, that filled Jerusalem, that filled all of Israel, that redeemed not just the temple, but the entire people of God in the everyday realities. Because the everyday realities bombard us with little stuff. You know, it's the little stuff that we remember. If you, you know, we remember all this little stuff that comes at us and and the more of that little stuff we remember, and the more that mud is thrown at us, eventually all we see is mud. Because every day, mud is thrown at you and me. And we deal with things that come our way, and we remember those things, and it shapes, begins to shape our perception of the world. It begins to shape our perception of ourselves, and it begins to shape our perception of the world. You know, the more mud I get on my glasses, the harder it is for me to see. The everyday realities is throwing mud at you and me. And if we remember those everyday realities, we get off focus. And there are those everyday realities that we have to deal with, but then there are those big, significant things that really have the power to save us. Because the everyday realities don't save but the enemy, our enemy knows that if he can get us to remember the wrong stuff, we'll forget the stuff that saves. So it's very important. If we're going to live into the redemption of Jerusalem and experience the presence of God, is that we remember the right stuff. We remember the stuff that matters. Jesus realized this. He realized that his redemption would, could easily be forgotten. That we could easily forget the redemption because we live in a war-filled world where the enemy of our souls wants to take us down. And he said, I want to help people remember the redemption that I have purchased for them on the cross. As a result, he gave us something. He gave us communion. He gave us the bread. 
and he gave us the cup. He gave us communion so that we might remember his redemption. Now, I grew up in the church, and we did communion. We'd do it once a quarter or so, and it was a good thing. But as a kid, I was always wondering, why do we do this? And, you know, you kind of get the answer. Every time I'd hear something on communion, we do this because Jesus told us to. Don't ask any questions. Sorry. Just an inquisitive person. Why do you do that? Why do we take this communion? Because I would sit there as a kid wondering, okay, I'd come into the church, and the table at the front would be covered with this white apron, and Dad was a deacon. That meant we were going to be there longer. (laughs) Don't worry, we're not going to be here longer. And it seemed out of place because I'm like, we take this little wafer and this little cup, and it's not wine because we're Baptists and we have to do grape juice. And um, I didn't understand why we did this. And it seemed like a waste of time, to be quite honest with you. I didn't, I didn't get it. I mean, I'm, you know, well, these are the kinds of things that nobody verbalized out loud because it was a holy moment. And I'm like, well, what if it doesn't feel holy? What if I don't get it? And if I don't get it, I'm not going to enter into it. And I had to get it. Well, I think this week I started to get some stuff. It's taken me a while. Maybe I'm just a slow learner. Maybe most of you already get this stuff. But it also seemed to me that it interfered with the real service. I was like, well, all we do around here is preach and sing three hymns. And why we, what is going on? Now, that was my tradition. Others in this room come from various other traditions. And I can't go into all the traditions, but some of you are Catholic. Come, up, or come from a Catholic background. And, and the Holy Mass was of, of vital importance. And uh, some were taught that the bread and the wine actually turned into the body of Christ. Physically. And that confused me. I was like, well, what does that mean? And then I, I, there are Presbyterians who take this so seriously that they analyze themselves to death. I met this Scottish Presbyterian minister, and he tells a story of a, a Presbyterian church in Scotland where they would only take this tradition only took communion once a year. And because it was a solemn, heavy time, and you had to they would encourage you to examine yourself before you came. I'm talking examine yourself. No, I'm not just talking about look at yourself. I mean examine yourself. And there was this one service where everybody was there because the Holy Communion was uh, of utmost importance because it was only once a year and everybody came and only this little old mean lady felt worthy enough to take communion. Nobody else in the room felt worthy enough for communion because they failed to understand grace. They failed to understand that God's not looking for perfection. He's looking for receiving heart. And he said these people saw communion as something as ominous and overbearing. So I, I, I know some people, uh, my aunt and uncle, who uh, went to a Church of Christ church. It was another tradition. And they celebrated it weekly and uh, to the point where they were encouraged not to miss church. In fact, we were having this family celebration to honor my grandmother at, at uh, an, another church and we wanted all of her children to come together and, and be there to celebrate and, and surprise my grandmother. And they had to check with their pastor to see if this was okay. And he said, well, it was okay as long as you come and take communion in an earlier time during the morning. 
And I was like, okay, I did not understand why the importance of communion. It seemed just legalistic to me. What, what, was, the, what was the significance of this? I think maybe my aunt and uncle may have been taught something about the importance of remembering their redemption and how the bread and the cup taught them that. Paul understood this in 1 Corinthians 11, verses 23 through 26. We have a text here, which is the earliest written text that records the communion service, the first Lord's Supper. It says there, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Paul does something unique with this passage that Matthew, Mark, and Luke are, are, don't quote Jesus as saying. They quote slightly different things. And you have to understand in the first century world where they didn't have mimeograph machines or, or well, photocopiers. We don't have mimeograph machines anymore. Uh, people under 25 don't even know what that is. But where they didn't have photocopiers or computers or everything, it was oral traditions and things were passed down and people remembered what was said. People actually had to remember what was said. Uh, Jesus uh, said these words and Paul recorded them it's saying, Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. And he says this twice. Do this in remembrance of me. And when we seek to remember Jesus and with the Lord's Supper or with communion, many of us remember through our experiences or other images that we might have, like Leonardo da Vinci's The Last Supper. You know, we might have... Uh, uh, image in our brain someone like this about this is how it operated well it didn't really look like that first of all Jesus was an Italian he was Jewish he was darker and so were the, all the other men they probably weren't that fat either they're a little plump in this picture um, but that was common for this time when he painted this picture for people to look like this and this is what they looked like in Italy, and that's okay, but that's not what they looked like. And they didn't sit behind a table all lined up for their photograph. <laughs> it's like, click. No, they were actually reclining on the floor in a circle, most likely. So it didn't look this opulent. It wasn't a big room with huge windows and a high ceiling. Uh, they didn't have buildings, common build. It was a very common room. It was a common upper room. It probably had one or two windows. And when we remember Jesus, we remember who he is in different ways. We remember different things about him. And we re through the bread and the, and the cup, we remember various aspects of him. And I want to highlight four ways that we remember our redemption. Four ways that our brain works to remember what Jesus did for us. 
The first is remembering redemptive facts. Facts work this way. There are factual realities that form a foundation for some topic. They form a foundation for who we are in Christ in this instance, but let's take, for example, geometry. It's been so long since I studied geometry, I don't know how to say it. Geometry. Let's take, you know, when I was a sophomore in high school and took geometry, we had to learn basic theorems. They were supposedly facts about the definition of a circle or definition of a square, and you memorize these facts and reproduce them on a test, and you soon there forget them. That's the way facts often work. Now, the way our brain works is we, we, we study facts and we memorize them. We regurgitate them on a test or something like that. I had to take the Minnesota driver's license test a few weeks ago. I'm like, is driving in Minnesota different than driving in Texas? I mean, all the rules seemed like they were the same, and I passed the Texas one, so, but I did pass, and I have, I'm an official, I'm legal now. I can drive in Minnesota. So I had to study the book and remember certain things and regurgitate those things, and I probably have forgotten them. But the way our brain works is the more we work with facts, the more they become part of us. For instance, if you're learning a new language, let's say Spanish, or French, you, you, you begin to memorize the words and one word for and, and you, you memorize what it means in French or Spanish or Italian or whatever, Russian or whatever language you're learning. And you begin to, tr you have to memorize those words so you can translate them back into English. But the more you work with the language, the more the language gets in you and you begin to understand what it means. There are some languages that I've worked with enough that when I see it or say it, I don't have to translate it because it's in me. I know, that, I know the meaning of that word without having to say what it is. I just know the meaning. And that's the way the facts about how, who we are in Christ begin to work. When you first come to Jesus, when you first receive him into your life, these facts seem very foreign that he died for my sins. What does that mean? Well, to someone who's been around for a while, you know what that means. But to someone who's new in Christ, they're like, I, they have all kinds of questions. Because they're foreign to them. And, and you have to wrestle with what these facts mean about who we are in Christ. And the realities of, I am a child in Christ and other things like that. And these facts, if you understand them and you remember them, will shape how you live. And to the extent that you remember them is the extent to which you will live in freedom. Because if you don't remember them, the mud of this world will get all over you. This is the reason the word of God is so crucial to our lives. Because it is full of facts that shape who you and I are. Let me illustrate how this works with three simple facts. Fact number one, Jesus came and conquered sin and evil. Simple little fact. There's a lot to that fact. We could talk about that alone in one whole sermon. But that he came and did that. Fact number two, as a child of God, my life is in Christ. Jesus Christ, my life is in him. In other words, he came, conquered sin and evil, and now that I have received him into my life, and I, now I live into him, and he is, it's kind of like a, I'm engulfed by him, and as I am surrounded by him. He becomes the one who lives through me. Fact number three, through Christ, I am an overcomer. Now, it is easy for some people to, to, to latch on to fact number three and say, I want to be an overcomer, so I'm just going to be an overcomer. 
like football or something. You know, rah! But that's not the way this works. Look, let me illustrate this by looking at Romans 8.37. It says, No, in all of these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. In other words, my conquering isn't my own. I live in victory because he won the victory. And we need to understand that fact. My victory is his victory. And it's only by that that I live in freedom. That is true, and that is a foundational fact upon which we build our lives. And we need to remember those things. And communion helps us to remember that. But if that's all we remember, communion then becomes a theological exercise. And that was the reason it didn't make sense to me as a kid. Because all we were told to do was remember what Jesus did for you on the cross, historically. I'm like, well, I get that in the history class. What am I doing this bread and cup for? How does that help me now? If all I'm doing is remembering some facts, I can get that out of the book or just tell me, preach me another sermon. That's more helpful than the bread and the wine. So there's got to be something more to this than remembering facts. And I think there is because our brain works on multiple levels when we're trying to remember something. Remembering redemptive experiences is a second aspect of remembering that we practice when we take the bread and the cup. Experiences are those lived memories, those things we will never forget. Experiences are those things like the day I moved out of my house and moved to college as an 18-year-old. I can describe to you the entire day, loading up the car, saying bye to my mom, stopping off to my father who was working a crew, building a fence at that time, and crying my entire four hours all the way to college. Well, I didn't cry that whole way. I would have lost water on my ears. But, you know, I'm a preacher. I can exaggerate a little bit. <laughs> I'm kidding. Well, I'm not really, but... <laughs> no, uh, but I can describe that day to you. I can describe every detail of the day I got married and how my bride looked when she turned the, room, turned the corner and I thought, oh, my goodness. What is this ugly boy doing marrying her? The days that my sons were born, I can, every little detail, those experiences are embedded upon my brain. Some experiences that are in our brains and memories that we have, the things that we remember, some are good, some are bad. Some are about failure, some are about success. But those experiences shape us. Those experiences, we remember them and they shape who we are. I remember the day that I, it's about six months ago, the day that I drove the Penske truck into St. Paul and moved up here. Big, huge, ugly thing. But I remember every detail of that day. Because it, it was significant and it shaped who I am. I also remember the day in 1990, September 7th, when I said to Jesus, I need you. Because you see, I grew up in the church. I grew up preaching. I preached in homeless missions. I led people to Jesus. I was a missionary to Germany, did uh, youth work. And then I realized when I was about 20 years old, I didn't know Jesus. I knew church. 
I knew how to play the religion game. And let me tell you, I was a religious jerk. I was. I was mean, judgmental. I don't see how anybody ever responded to something I preached. But that day, the cross was applied to me. And every time I take the bread and I take the cup, I go back to that day. Every little detail of that day is, in, is burned into my brain because that day, more than any other day in my life, shapes who I am. And it breaks my heart because I say, God, I didn't deserve that. Because look at who I was. And he says, yeah, but I love you anyway. That day, that redemptive day, I remember when I take the bread and the cup. The third kind of remembering is remembering redemptive promises. Because you see, the, this meal that we're going to partake in, in a few minutes is a foretaste of a feast. Now, I don't know if you've ever been to a wedding feast. Now, in North America, we do wedding ceremonies and we do wedding finger foods. I'm talking about a wedding feast. And from a culture that knows how to celebrate for two or three hours after the wedding. And they dance and they celebrate this communion of a, 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 a man and woman. And Jesus is saying, when you get to heaven, there's going to be a feast because I'm celebrating you. I'm going to dance over you with singing, and we're going to eat together. And this meal is a foretaste of a promise that we must remember that this life is not all we have. That we have a promise of healing in the future. We have a promise of total freedom and redemption. That we have a promise that we will be sitting next to people who are different than we are and say, I love you. I don't know, you know, even though we didn't understand each other back there, I understand you now. We have that promise. Because Jesus is king and he saved us and he redeemed us 2,000 years ago. That is what this bread and this cup mean. It's a promise that is coming, but it's not just a hope for the future. It's a hope that can come into today. We don't have to wait for the future. I've been to churches where they sit around and moped and moaned and said, Oh, poor us. The world's going to hell in a handbasket. And all we have to do is just wait for Jesus to come back and get us. And it was going to get worse and worse and worse. Well, sign me up. I want to come back next week. <laughs> I'm like, why do you even preach this stuff? Because the hope of the future is intersecting the realities of today. And you may be sitting there going, yeah, Scott, but you don't understand my life. You don't understand what's going on in my, my home. You don't understand what's going on in my body. You don't understand what's going on in my work. You don't understand what's going on in my finances. And I'm saying to you that God wants to give you a Holy Spirit-inspired inspiration and imagination to view things as a possibly being different. Possibly through this bread and through this cup, things can be different in your life. Things can change in your life. Because God gave me that imagination and I sloughed off being a jerk. I sloughed off a lot of stuff that I thought I had to live with for the rest of my life. A lot of stuff in my patterns of thinking that I thought, well, this is just who I am. And God says, no, no, no. 
the hope of the future is intersecting the present. Don't give up on that. When we take the bread and the cup, the Holy Spirit wants to enliven our imaginations to see the possibility that things can be different today. The last thing is we remember the redemptive God. When Paul was quoting Jesus, Jesus did not say, remember the facts, or even remember your experience when you got saved, or remember the future. He's saying, remember me. Do this in remembrance of me. Because he knew that we are human beings that needed more than words. I need more than theological statements to understand who Jesus is. I need more than words that record, were recorded 2,000 years ago. Although those theolo theology, I, my, my shelves are full of theology books that would bore most people. I like that kind of stuff. And I love reading the Bible, but I need an encounter with the presence of Jesus. I need to see Jesus. Because he knows that we are physical beings who have physical bodies that need a touch. There's a book by Gary Chapman named The Five Love Languages. Now I want you to imagine this last Tuesday, for those of you who are married, I hope you remembered Valentine's Day, or seeing someone of significant other, and if you didn't, go clean out your bank account real quickly and do something significant. But imagine if I'd woken up and rolled over and said, Shauna, I love you. Happy Valentine's Day. Scurried off to work. Come home. Did their thing. Take care of the kids. Put the kids down. Say, honey, I love you. Happy Valentine's Day. Roll over and go to bed. Do you think that would have connected to her heart? Do you think she would have gotten the fact that I loved her? No. She would have missed it because I wasn't speaking a love language that meant something deeper. I could have meant it in my heart. We need to speak the love language of other people is what this book says. He, he labels five different love languages. The first is quality time, spending significant time with another person. My parents are like this. They, they, we don't have to talk. We just have to hang out together. They like that. Another, uh, another love language is gifts and cards. And if someone speaks that love language, they enjoy receiving gifts and uh, you understanding what kind of gifts they might like to receive. Another is acts of kindness. You do something around the house or something like that. Words of affirmation is the fourth one. And the last one is physical touch, a hug or a hold. And Jesus knew that he needed to give us a love language. He needed to give us something that was tangible that we could take. And he said, I'm giving you myself some love language to remember who I am that's much more significant than words in the bread and the cup. Now, we don't actually encounter Jesus. The bread doesn't turn into Jesus. I mean, it's still bread. And the grape juice doesn't turn into Jesus' blood. It's still grape juice. And Jesus doesn't somehow come and mysteriously sit next to you in some weird way. It's really through the Holy Spirit. As he 
through our encounter with the bread and the cup, we are somehow mysteriously connected to Jesus through the Holy Spirit. I don't know how to explain it all. I only have an analogy. An, an analogy is always imperfect. There's never a direct correlation between an, an analogy and reality. But it's all we have. My grandmother lived about 50 yards away from my home as a kid. Now, my grandmother could cook. She could cook, and most of it was fried. I grew up in the South. But she could cook? Oh, goodness. And my favorite thing that my grandmother would cook is what we call banana pudding. Now, you, it may be a southern food. I think it is, because some people said, I have never heard of banana pudding. But she could make this banana pudding that knocked my socks off. I didn't care if anybody else liked it. You could just make it for me. Now, I've had a lot of banana pudding that my grandmother didn't make, because she died when I was in high school. So my mother has made banana pudding. Other people have made banana pudding. But nothing compares to the ideal of all ideals of desserts my grandmother's banana pudding. And when I get to heaven, I'm going to seek her out and ask her to make me some. <laughs> and I'm sure the bananas in heaven are better than the ones here, and it'll be awesome. But I've had other banana pudding, and I've even had you know, some good banana pudding, but whenever I have someone else's banana pudding, I think of her banana pudding. And not only that, I think of my momo. And I go right back to her and think about how I loved her and how she loved me. And that's the closest analogy I can come to to say whenever we take the bread and we take the cup, it's not an ideal. The ideal meal will come in the future. It's only a foretaste. But he's saying, remember me because I gave you this. Remember my love for you. Remember what I gave up for you so that you could live. Now go out and live it. Go out and live it. Go out and live it. As the worship team comes forward and the ushers serve us the elements this morning, we have the opportunity to enter into an institution that Jesus gave us that has been practiced by the church for over 2,000 years, or about 2,000 years. It will shape your memory if you allow it to. It will shape who you are. It will transform you if you allow it to. It's much more than remembering facts. It's remembering what matters. Remembering what matters this morning will slough off the stuff that gets at us, that little stuff that comes at us that we think we got to figure out how life works. And he's saying, no, don't worry about all that other stuff. Remember what matters this morning. Jesus. Remember what matters.